0: Welcome to Pop Culture Rx, part of Hackensack Meridian Health's award-winning podcast. Pop Culture Rx is where we sit down with a medical expert and talk through various health-related topics circulating in today's media. In our discussions, you'll hear from a variety of professionals sharing insight and advice on these newsworthy conditions. This is Pop Culture Rx. In 2005, Nick Jonas was 13 years old, singing his heart out on tour with his band, the Jonas Brothers, when he landed in the hospital. Nick shared with the media how he was in really bad shape, how he had lost 20 pounds in about two weeks, couldn't drink enough water, was going to the bathroom all the time and was very irritable. When doctors discovered his blood sugar level was over 900 milligrams per deciliter, Nick was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Since then, Nick has teamed up with the Global Movement for Time and Range, an initiative that aims to accelerate the adoption of time and range as an important metric in diabetes management. And by teaming up with this Global Movement for Time and Range, Nick aims to help people understand that they are deserving of adequate care and hopes to give hope to others that they can too manage their condition as well. Today, we have Dr. Colette Knight, an endocrinologist with Hackensack University Medical Center and chair of Insera Family Diabetes Institute, here to help us talk about diabetes and how to help manage the condition. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Knight. Oh, Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. And now, before we dive in, I wanted to tell just a little bit of, of a story. So my mom has, has prediabetes, and she helps manage her condition through diet and when she was first diagnosed with you know these pre-diabetic kind of factors we went out to dinner one night and my dad after the waiter came over and offered us the dessert menu my dad you know such a great heart and you know so kind said to the waiter oh, no, sorry, you know, my wife is dealing with a bit of diabetes right now, um, so we're not going to order dessert tonight. As if it was a cold or the flu, like this was something that she could get rid of. Um, and we, every time we see a waiter and he offers us the dessert menu, we always are like, oh, no, no, we have a bit of the diabetes right now. Um, so can you help enlighten us and my dad what is diabetes and why we can't just get rid of it?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. So diabetes is a condition that happens because you either don't make enough insulin or you can't actually respond to it. So insulin is a hormone that is helpful because it takes the glucose that's floating around in the body and it puts it into the muscles where it can be used for energy. And then you also have pre Now that's where the glucose is high, but not high enough to call it diabetes. But if someone has pre-diabetes, that's actually where the work begins. So, I totally agree with your mom that
0: she needs to be proactive. Yes, absolutely. And very, you know, into her diet and drinking lots of water and all the, and checking her sugar levels and things like that. It's almost more work than having full blown diabetes at that point. In
1: some ways, it's a lot of work, but it can actually become a routine. The good thing is that prediabetes is reversible and lifestyle intervention and diet and exercise. Those are the ways that you actually help to reverse it. So I think the best way to do it is to just make those positive changes an active way of life so that it doesn't seem like such a burden. And very quickly, you'll actually
0: see the numbers that support that. That's awesome. So good things for my mom. Absolutely. So Nick was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and we also have heard about type 2 diabetes. What is the difference there? So type 1
1: diabetes is basically due to pancreatic deficiency, where they are unable to make insulin. We traditionally think of it as a diabetes of the young person or the child, but actually now we are seeing older adults with type 1. Type 2 diabetes, or traditionally adult onset diabetes, is where those persons actually make insulin but they might be resistant to the insulin that they make. And so someone with type one, because they're insulin deficient, they will go on insulin immediately. And someone with type two could use diet and exercise, or they might start on tablets before they might even need to go on insulin.
0: And what would be the risk factors for, for these types of diabetes? You know, is eating too much sugar <laughs> and ordering off the dessert menu something that could add to that?
1: Well, certainly there are many risk factors for diabetes. So, age, as we get older, there is an increased risk. Family history, especially parents or siblings, if they have diabetes, is a higher risk. Race and ethnicity, so blacks, um, Hispanics, um, Asians. American Indians, those are the higher risk populations. If someone has high blood pressure, they too would be at increased risk, as well as high cholesterol. If someone is sedentary, not exercising enough, if you're not moving, glucose is not going into the muscle and glucose eventually goes up and over time, that becomes an issue. If there is increased weight, that is body weight, that actually leads to resistance, and so insulin doesn't work as well, and someone can be diagnosed with diabetes. In women who've had diabetes during pregnancy, also known as gestational diabetes, they are also at increased risk. So there are a lot of risk factors. There are a lot of risk factors to think about, but I think for anyone listening to us today, they should really work with their doctors to do a risk assessment and understand what their risks are there's some things that we can actually treat. We can't do anything about our family history, per se, or our ethnicity, but we can certainly control our blood pressure better, cholesterol, we can eat more
0: healthy. So
1: some of those risk factors are modifiable.
0: Absolutely. And you mentioned gaining gaining weight could you know block the insulin and Nick mentioned you know that he lost a ton of weight so it's almost like either way it could be yes yeah, so in the setting of type 1 diabetes
1: which Nick has it's a state of very abrupt insulin deficiency and with that you end up breaking down fat and muscle and so that's why they have an extremely rapid weight loss in a matter of weeks <laughs> and so But with that, the glucose goes up. They also make ketone bodies, and so they become very, very ill.
0: Yeah, and then in the case of, I guess, type two...
1: Right, so in type two, the weight now causes resistance. And so they have insulin, but they can't use it. So that's the difference.
0: Got it, got it. Now, what are some other symptoms besides weight loss, weight gain? So someone with,
1: who's developing diabetes might notice that they have increased thirst. My patients always say to me, I feel like I need to drink so much, but I am always thirsty. They urinate a lot. They're very tired. Um, they may be more prone to having infections, especially recurrent infections, urinary tract infections, skin infections that, um, that don't heal. Um, but, you know, so many people have no symptoms others might actually notice blurry vision so when driving everything seems a little bit more cloudy um than before maybe irritability could also be a sign mm-hmm. of you know of diabetes so there are multiple signs for type 2 um diabetes those signs can be very subtle and gradual and one might only find out after the glucose levels are very high But with type 1, abrupt. And so, as we meet our patients and we try to make the diagnosis, how the acuity of the presentation helps us. If it happens within days or weeks, we might say that's more likely type 1. If it's been weeks or months, then that, you know, automatically we can think that's probably type 2.
0: And obviously, you know, the tall-tell sign is what's their blood sugar level. What's their blood
1: sugar? So
0: that's why it's so
1: important for everyone to see their primary providers and have, at a minimum, an annual evaluation. We have multiple ways to screen for diabetes. So one way is a random glucose. You show up to the doctor's office. If the number is 200 or higher, that's diabetes. We also have a fasting glucose. So that's after not eating for eight hours, checking the glucose. For most people, that's going to be in the morning. And if your level is 126 milligrams per deciliter or higher, that's also diagnostic. We also have hemoglobin A1c. So that's a test that measures the amount of glucose on red blood cells. Red blood cells live for three months. And so the A1c tells us what's been happening for the past three months. And a level of 6.5% or higher is diagnostic for diabetes. And then the fourth is what we call the glucose tolerance test, where your doctor might suggest uh, you're drinking, basically, um, a sort of a glucose-containing substance with 75 grams of carbohydrates, and then they measure glucose. And if after two hours it's over 200, that's also diagnostic.
0: Isn't that the test that you take when you're pregnant?
1: Yes, so that's also the test that we use during <laughs> pregnancy because it's actually quite sensitive in assessing hyperglycemia.
0: Wow. So when you're pregnant, how does that change your diagnosis? Because I do know that some people have you know, diabetes while they're pregnant, but then it goes away. Exactly. So
1: pregnant patients can come to us in a number of ways. Some of them have diabetes before pregnancy, and so for those individuals even before you become pregnant, it's important to work with your provider. Make sure that your glucose levels are normal or stable, that you are on the best treatment. Certainly the A1c should be below 6.5% if possible so that conception and development of the baby happens under the best of circumstances and then there are because and the reason for that is because there are multiple complications when diabetes is not well managed um, you could have fetal demise at the beginning of pregnancy um or significant organ malformations of the heart and so on or you can have a baby who's just growing very large and so at delivery there are complications both for the the baby where you could have something called shoulder dystocia where they actually end up with nerve damage, or you could have issues for the mother as well. And then you have another group who did not have known diabetes before the pregnancy, but then during the pregnancy they do the glucose tolerance test somewhere around the 26th week or so, and then they are found to have a high glucose. Pregnancy causes other hormones to be highly expressed. And those hormones create a state of insulin resistance. And so that's why we at times see higher rates of diabetes. Now there are many ways to treat these women. One could be diet, depending on what the glucose level is. Some go on tablets and others actually need to go on insulin right away. And glucose targets for pregnancy are a little bit different than in the non-pregnant person. So for example, we would want the fasting glucose to be less than 95, and two hours after eating, the glucose should be 120. Um, But if they're well-managed, everything goes well, for many of these women, after pregnancy, they actually revert back to having normal glucose. However, it is important for them to continue to be monitored by their primary provider at least every 6 to 12 months to ensure that they do not go on to develop diabetes. Because many of them do, and unfortunately, when they transition over again to diabetes, they don't know it. And so when we see them, it's in the emergency room with the glucose of 400, and that could have been avoided.
0: Yeah, it sounds like that's almost like a risk factor. Exactly, it, it is. And so
1: the misconception that a lot of women have, they think that after they have the baby, that the risk is gone. But no, once you've had gestational diabetes, that is a known risk that you have to develop diabetes at some point in your life. And so close monitoring, healthy lifestyle, exercise, all of those measures will continue to prevent that progression.
0: Absolutely. So I did want to talk to you about a couple of myths that I found um, on the internet, and I wanted you to kind of myth bust them. So the first one is, no one in my family has diabetes, so I won't get the disease.
1: Just know that at times, while we think of diabetes, especially type two, as being hereditary or genetic, Diabetes can also be sporadic. (laughs) And so with or without a family history, you can certainly develop diabetes. But I think it's important for everyone to ask family members about their specific history. We find so many times that families are not talking to each other. And information is key in this case.
0: Absolutely. So the next one is, I will likely develop diabetes because I'm overweight.
1: Yes, with increasing body weight, there is increased insulin resistance and as a result, um, a trend towards developing diabetes, but by reversing weight gain, you can also reverse that risk. So weight changes, that's actually one of the modifiable risks that I think anyone can take advantage
0: of. I eat a lot of sugar, so I'm worried I'll get diabetes.
1: Well, eating sugar in and of itself does not cause diabetes because just remember that diabetes is a problem with insulin and insulin action. So if there's adequate insulin use and your body responds well, even if one might eat a lot of sugar, they might be able to get rid of it or dispose of it appropriately. Um, However, we don't necessarily Endorse eating excessive amounts <laughs> of sugar because high glucose causes inflammation and other issues. So, I would say eat with moderation. So, no candy for breakfast? Preferably not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Maybe oatmeal. <laughs> I have diabetes, so I can never eat sweets. No, you can have
1: sweets. We have, you know, fruits have sort of natural sugar one might have dessert, but portion control is really what matters there.
0: My doctor put me on insulin, so this means I'm not doing a good job at managing my blood sugar.
1: For a long time, insulin has been looked upon as a bad medication, but the use of insulin could be done because your doctor wants you to correct the high glucose quickly and safely. Um, And so it doesn't mean that you're not doing a good job at your diabetes. It just means that that will be the best treatment at that time. For most people, insulin is an intervention that could last a few weeks or a few months. It doesn't have to be lifelong either. So it's important to work with your doctor to understand why they're considering insulin. Usually it's because the A1C is very high, usually if it's above 9 or 10 percent, or the glucose is persistently high in the high 200 to 300 range. Those are numbers where it's obvious that someone would need an injectable therapy. Your doctor will tell you how it should be given. Um, Is it given at night? Is it given during the day? Is it given with meals? There are several different schedules that one can use and as the glucose improves, then the management can be de-intensified and your doctor can say, you know what, you've done great with the insulin that we've used so far. Why don't we transition to something else? So in my practice, a lot of my patients who I start on in insulin, we discontinue the therapy within 12 weeks and wow. I can easily put them on tablets. But during that time, just remember that we are working on eating healthy, on exercising, on really understanding how all of those factors affect glucose. And so I think with education, many of our patients may not need to be on insulin for a long time. I also want to emphasize because in that question, what many people hear when they hear about insulin is failure. So insulin is not failure. Insulin is therapy, and sometimes it truly is the best choice.
0: So you mentioned insulin, you mentioned tablets. Are there any other alternative Yeah, so now medicine? we
1: have non-insulin injections, and they're called GLP agonists, and our audience might know them as, um, as Trulicity, and so on. These medications have been shown to do much more than lower glucose they stimulate or promote weight loss some have even been shown to have heart health benefits and that's important because diabetes is a cardiovascular disease it is equivalent to having heart disease and so when we think about treating diabetes of course we want to lower glucose but we want to do Many other things. We want to protect the heart, protect the kidney, protect the vasculature, the whole body. We want to prevent weight gain. And so it's a more holistic approach that goes well beyond looking at just glucose or even A1C.
0: Oh, very interesting. Okay, next one. It's not safe to exercise with diabetes. Actually,
1: exercise is one of the most practical and effective interventions that you can do. And that's as simple as walking around your neighborhood. If you've had dinner and you check your glucose and it's about, let's say 175, after walking for about a mile or so, your glucose could be down to 140. So I recommend that my patients walk, that they just stay active as much as they can. The issue could be that if your diabetes is poorly controlled or if your glucose is very high, you may feel very tired and you don't feel like you should exercise. But actually, that's the one thing that you really should be doing.
0: Diabetes always leads to blindness and amputation.
1: Certainly, blindness and amputations are two of the main complications, but it is possible to have diabetes, live with the disease, and you do not have to have any of those complications. And the reason being, one, your treatment can be optimized and two, the patient and their provider should be actively working to screen for those conditions. So if someone has type two diabetes, at the time of diagnosis, one of the first things that should happen is that they should have a referral to see an eye doctor to get a baseline eye exam because we need to know has diabetes damaged the eyes or not because we only know when we actually make the diagnosis of type two diabetes, but we don't actually know when it begins. It could have been years before. And so that is an important um, first step. And patients should be followed every year with an eye exam. A foot exam should be done in the doctor's office and they should be checking for sensation and, and so on. I encourage my patients to check their feet every single day. You're looking for broken skin, um, calluses, um, cuts that you may not see because if there's a cut, bacteria could get in and then there's an infection. So foot care is extremely important. And this can be done by your primary provider, but for many people they'll actually benefit from seeing a podiatrist who can actually do an even more comprehensive exam they assist with nail care. They treat like nail fungus disease. They can educate on better um, shoes that one might want to wear and additional support. So those things have to be actually prioritized. We screen for other things as well. So we do a urine test to screen for kidney disease. That's actually part of the routine evaluation for someone who has um, diabetes. If someone is complaining of, let's say, leg pain, we will also do a screening test to see if there's any issues with blood flow and circulation in the legs. So a lot of these complications can be prevented, and the way we do that is improving diabetes control. So what is the target glucose that you want to have that will prevent these kind of complications? Well, one is an A1c, and as I said, that's the amount of red blood cells the amount of glucose on your red blood cells, the target A1C should be less than 7%. Studies have actually shown that at that level of control, you have reduced um, issues with the eyes and other complications. Um, So the patient will work with their provider to determine what their glucose targets should be. If someone is a little bit older and have other issues like kidney disease and so on, we might be a little bit more permissive. So we might say, okay, in that case, the A1C could be 7.5% to 8%. But the decision on what is best for that patient really lies on a mutual discussion. I have patients who are extremely well controlled and their A1C is 6% or even 5.8%. And they do that without having low glucose. They have so the very stable levels throughout the day. And so it takes time to do that. And that is going to be achieved through healthy eating, exercise, and potentially medications as well. but diabetes control is achievable. So if anyone is listening and they are saying, you know, I've tried so many medications and nothing seems to work for me. You can try many things, but perhaps the sequence of medications or the type that you have used probably isn't what is really best for you. And sometimes it's, it's good to take a fresh look at the treatment plan. Many patients get started on one medication and they are stuck on that medication for 20 years. While in the field of diabetes, we've had many medications over the last few years that are known to be extremely effective. So if someone is feeling stuck in their management, talk to your provider or get a new consultant who specializes in diabetes and I'm sure that you'll be able to find some additional information that will help you.
0: Is there any chance, so you mentioned someone being on medication for 20 years, is there any chance that they might create immunity to this medication?
1: There are some medications for diabetes care that you could say that they have a a time limit, Mm -hmm. especially those that require a functioning pancreas. So we have a class of medications called sulfonylureas, and they require that that person should have a fairly robust pancreas that can be stimulated to make insulin. But over time the pancreas loses function. So over time those medications don't work as well. But we have so many to choose from that we can fine tune the treatment plan based on the needs of the patient. So I have never run out of any options <laughs> in my years of practice. That's a because good thing. we've have we have a very good cocktail. The limiting issue now isn't the medications that are available. There are many. The limiting issue is really cost and access. And those are the things that limit us.
0: Yeah. And actually that's what um, Nick Jonas is trying to promote is access to, to care. Absolutely. And this is really a
1: universal issue because it doesn't matter where you are or, you know, this is a problem. The What we find, actually, is that the patients who need these medications the most are the ones who can least afford them. And so we expect, you know, the medical community, we expect our local governments and so on to really get involved in improving access for diabetes management.
0: Absolutely. So you mentioned cocktail. I heard it in there. Mm -hmm. One of the myths is I can never drink alcohol, beer, wine or liquor again. (laughs) Well,
1: I think any alcohol use should be done with caution. But even with diabetes, it's not an absolute no. But I think that if someone chooses to drink, they should have some understanding of what's in those beverages. So a mixed drink would have a lot of carbohydrates, mm-hmm. right? Beer is essentially liquid bread. Yeah. <laughs> so that, too, has some carbs and you know, wine and all of those things. I, what I've seen is that my patients with diabetes who might choose to have a drink, so maybe every night with dinner or several times a week, they do that and they would monitor their glucose because part of the process is to learn what happens after you've had um, such a beverage. So my, you know, my advice would always be to keep that to a minimum, understand how it might be changing your glucose levels, and... I would say certainly have that as part of the discussion that you want to have with your doctor (laughs) this
0: one made me laugh you can catch diabetes
1: (laughs) well I could see how some people would say that since we have so many spouses and best friends who have diabetes And, you know, you don't really catch it. As I said, (laughs) there's a a genetic um, component. I think when you get to a certain age, for example, you might see that more people in your social circle um, have diabetes. But I I think if that's the case, you could actually use that to your advantage. And so that everyone gets on to sort of a more healthy, you know, life plan and you can work together. I find that um, when people who either live together Or socialize together when they decide to make lifestyle changes, that they actually tend to do better with that.
0: All right, so last one. It's just a touch of sugar. How bad could it be?
1: Yes, I've always been worried about that term, a touch of sugar, because even if you have mild hyperglycemia, that is still sufficient to cause inflammation and to. Begin the process of damaging your organs and damaging your blood vessels. So I would say, you know, there's no such thing as a touch of sugar. I think once you are diagnosed with high glucose, pre-diabetes, that's when you have to take action and do everything that you can to bring your glucose levels back to the normal range.
0: Anything else you have to add?
1: So I would just want everyone to know that Diabetes is a very treatable condition, but to do that well requires a lot of education. And I would say if you have that diagnosis, the first thing you have to do is build your team. You have a primary provider, but you might also benefit from having a diabetes educator or a registered dietitian because those are the ones who really help you with lifestyle um, intervention. Um, having an endocrinologist like myself who specialize in diabetes I think is quite important because we can inform that person about the newer therapies and the newer technologies that we have now um, to monitor glucose um, and in many ways fine-tune the management. You also have to think about what else comes with your diabetes. Is there kidney disease? Is there issues with blood flow? Um, Have you had heart disease? Then you need other specialists to manage with that. But most importantly, make sure that all of your team of providers, that they're actually communicating with each other and keep you, the patient, at the forefront and center of all of that. No one should be progressing to complications of diabetes. But unfortunately, especially here in New Jersey, we see that way too often. But this is a very treatable conditions. You just need to have the correct treatment and the best team to work with you.
0: Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Knight. I feel like I've learned a lot. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. If you have a topic you'd like for us to cover, submit your ideas on hmh4u.org podcast. Your suggestion could be included in the You Ask For It special episodes. The material provided through this Help You podcast is intended to be used as general information only and should not replace the advice of your physician. Always consult your physician for individual care.